0: Hey, Rocky Peak. Michael here. It's just so good to be with you. Uh, you know, we're going to be going into our time of teaching right now. If we haven't met yet, I am one of the pastors here and just looking forward to spending some time with you in this very special weekend as we prepare for uh, this, this novel, kind of pivotal week in the life of our nation. So if you uh, haven't done so uh, already, I encourage you once again to download the message note sheet in whatever format you prefer. You'll definitely need it today. Then we're going to pray and jump right let's pray together oh god we just come to you uh this weekend on the uh on the kind of the eve so to speak of a very important week in the life of our nation and god we just want to come before you uh today we want to come before you during 24 hours of prayer we want to pray with with um with prayer we want to pray with fasting god we want to seek you uh for the future of our country we see this in such a pivotal time, and Father, we pray that you will be preparing us today as followers of Jesus how to prepare our hearts, our posture, our stance as we head in this week. So we pray that you use this time in a powerful way to give us your vision for what it means to be a follower at this critical time in the life of our nation. We pray this in your name, and everyone said, amen. our story starts today, and it's a major city. This is a city where he's grown up. It's a city he loves. He knows every nook and cranny. He's grown up as a son of a very wealthy and influential family, a family with lots of ties, the leadership of the nation. It's a city he loves. But today, as he sits on his bed, he is incredibly depressed. He's sad, he's forlorn, he's, he's in shock because he's just received the news that the nation that has recently conquered his city is going to be taking him away as a high-profile hostage to a, a land uh, hundreds of miles away he's not really sure exactly what this will mean for him. He doesn't even know if he'll survive. But he knows that at the very least that he'll be forced to learn a new language, an entire new culture. And he knows that it's very likely he will never see his family, his friends, or his homeland again. And so as he sits here today on the edge of the bed reading the message that he's received, His mind keeps racing, looking for any way out, any way to avoid the inevitable. But he knows deep down that there is no other way, that there's no one could save him. And as he sits here, the emotions are overwhelming. The fear, the sorrow, the despair, the anger, the frustration, knowing that whether it's later today or later this week, that he'll be, they'll receive a knock on the door, that he'll be taken into custody and that he's about to become a pawn of international politics. Well, today we are taking a break from the regular series that we've been in. If you've been with us the last few months, we just finished a series last weekend called The Resurrected King, Spiritual Warfare in Times of Challenge. Next weekend, we're kicking off a brand new series, Lord willing. Uh, It's called The Blessing, God's Pursuit of His People. But for today, I want to bring a special message for a special weekend in the life of our nation. I think it was about a month ago, maybe six weeks ago, that I was out hiking one day, that I just felt like the Lord began to speak to me and kind of put in my heart that on this weekend before these crucial elections that we're going into this week, that I needed to bring a special message to help give us perspective on this weekend, on the elections and the aftermath. Now, if you've been here at Rocky Peak, you know that for many years, I've been talking about my concern for the direction of our culture and our country. Um, If you were here, even in the last series, early on, I believe it was the third week of the series, we talked about spiritual warfare at the highest level, how the highest level is a level of ideas, ideology. And we saw in Romans chapter one that when A nation, when a culture, when a people reject the truth about God that's revealed in creation and in conscience, that that nation, that people will begin an inevitable downward spiral that will lead first to spiritual confusion and then to sexual confusion and then to social chaos. And I believe that that's what we're seeing in our culture this past year. And I believe this election is an incredibly important time in the life of our nation. And like you, I'm praying that God would raise up godly leaders or leaders that would make wise choices to lead us into the future. I'm praying that God would send his spirit to bring a spirit of repentance to our nation, that we could come under the leadership of our true king again so he could bless our nation. This is why we're fasting. This is why we're praying as we enter into this very important, critical, turning point week in the life of our culture. But I also want to prepare us because I don't know about you, but I have no idea what's going to happen this week. I have no idea what's going to happen in the coming weeks, in the aftermath of this election. I think as followers of Jesus that it's important that Whatever happens, that we keep focused on some big-picture truths. The Bible tells us again and again that during this time, that we can uh, take an appropriate posture as followers of Jesus. That we can uh, move forward in the future with confidence, regardless of what happens, uh, and that together we can advance His kingdom. And so today, I've called this message "Thriving in Babylon." Uh, charting our course. In fact, if you'll hear a note sheet there, I've called it that twice, I didn't catch that. But there on your note sheet in the second time, the second section by that title, I, w- I wanna highlight three big picture principles the Bible teaches over and over they are gonna be critical for you and I to embrace, to understand, and to live in in the coming weeks, regardless of what happens. And so there in your note sheet, if you find that second section, Thriving in Babylon, charting our course, I want to highlight three simple but profound truths that are going to carry us through. The the first truth is one that we have been talking about often in the last six months. We talked about it in the last couple series. We've talked about it a lot in the series on spiritual warfare. It's very simple, and it goes like this, that Jesus is king. You know, one of the very first creeds of the ancient church was Jesus is Lord, and so many times that we get so we get so familiar with that, we miss what they're saying. But in the Roman Empire, Caesar was Lord, and so when the early Christians said, "No, Jesus is Lord," it was not just a religious statement; it was a political statement. It was a statement that, by virtue of his life, his death, and resurrection, that Jesus had dethroned the powers of darkness that he had stripped them of their powers, that he had, uh, through his resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of God, and that Jesus is now cre- crowned as king of creation. Now, we don't always see that. Uh, the New Testament is very clear. This is a hidden reality, but in the unseen realm, behind the curtain, that Jesus is the top authority of the world, and he is ruling over creation. Now, he's not yet taken his power, in the words of Revelation 11, he's not yet taken his power and begun to reign. We'll see that later on. But he's the ultimate authority in the universe, and whatever happens this week as followers of Jesus, we need to keep clear on that. Um, It's interesting because in theology, we call this teaching the sovereignty of God that God is king over his creation, and that in spite of our rebellion as a race, in spite of the evil, that that's unleashed, that God is still ruling, and now he's, by virtue of his life, death, and resurrection, he's installed his Messiah as king over that creation. And so we see this throughout the Bible, but I just put a couple examples there. The first is from Psalm 103 that the Lord, and of course, Lord, all caps means Yahweh. It's the the Hebrew word Yahweh, personal name. He says, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. This is a constant teaching of scripture that this world as evil it is, is under the authority of the king and that he's working through history, his purposes. In Isaiah chapter 40, the nation of Israel is in Babylon. They're wondering if they'll ever escape. They feel hopeless, like God has forgotten them because of their sin. But in Isaiah chapter 40, the Lord says, no, that's not the case. And in the midst of that long, beautiful passage, uh, Isaiah says, see, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. Surely the nations are but a drop in the bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. And as we move forward this week, whatever happens... We need to keep clear on this, that Jesus is Lord, he's ruling over the nations, and he's carrying out his purposes. And as followers of Jesus, this should give us great confidence that he'll be with us, and he'll strengthen us, whatever happens this week. One of the passages, uh, one of the books of the Bible that teaches this most clearly is the Old Testament book of Daniel. And I don't know how familiar you are with the story of Daniel, but this really takes us back to the story we started the day with. We started the day with the story of this young man who's grown up in a city that he's grown up as a, a, very, a, a very wealthy uh, kind of influential family. And yet he's just discovered that he is going to be taken away from his homeland uh, and shipped off to a foreign nation, most likely as a hostage. This is a true story. It's the story of Daniel. And we're told in chapter one of Daniel that in the year 605 BC, that the new superpower on the block, the nation of Babylon, had invaded the southern kingdom of Judah and had conquered Jerusalem. Now, it's going to be about 20 years before they destroy the city because of Jerusalem's ongoing rebellion. But in this first incursion, they, they bring the city under their leadership and they take with them some of the leading citizens, most likely as hostages, back to Babylon. And we're told that Daniel is one of these young men that are taken away, that he's gonna be taken away. And when he arrives in Babylon, he's going to be selected for a very high profile education. that's gonna last about three years, sort of like a college education where he's gonna be trained for a high-level service in the Babylonian government. This is gonna require him to study pagan literature. It's gonna require him to learn about all the religion of the gods of Babylon. It's gonna require him to study the black arts and sorcery and astrology. And so in the midst of his life, as his life is falling apart, his nation is on the verge of collapse, he's been moved a thousand miles away, he's being forced to study all this pagan literature and education, and yet in the midst of it, Daniel thrives. He thrives in Babylon. And one of the reasons is very early on that God showed him that God was bigger than the destruction of his nation, that God was bigger than what was happening to him in Babylon, and that God was working out his plans in history. And very early on, in fact, it was probably about the year 602 BC, three years into his stay after his education, that very early on we're told that the the, the king of this massive empire, King Nebuchadnezzar, had a very disturbing dream. It was a prophetic dream, he knew that. Um, but he didn't know what it meant. And through a series of events, and I'm not gonna go through all the details. If you wanna read the account on your own, check out Daniel chapter two. But through a series of events, God gave Daniel the interpretation of this dream. And in essence, what the king saw in his dream was this huge statue that was made of different kinds of metals, a head of gold, shoulders and arms of silver, uh, torso, thighs of bronze, legs and feet of iron, and then iron mixed with clay. And it turns out that what God was doing was showing King Nebuchadnezzar the future, that there was going to be uh, a series of four successive kingdoms. Looking in the rearview mirror now, we know them as Babylon. These were superpowers. Babylon, then conquered by Persia, conquered by Greece with Alexander the Great conquered by Rome. And so in this vision, he sees this huge statue of four successive kingdoms. But in the dream, he also sees a rock that's cut out of a quarry and begins to roll towards this huge statue. And when it gets there, it hits the feet of the statue and demolishes the entire statue. The wind picks up and blows it away as if it were never there. But then this small stone begins to grow and grow and it becomes this massive mountain that fills the entire earth. And what God said to the king and to Daniel was that God was working out his plan in history. And after those four kings, that God was going to bring a kingdom not cut out of, not not cut with human hands. It was going to be a supernatural kingdom that was going to rise and take over the whole world. In fact, there in your note sheet, you see this passage in Daniel chapter 2. He says, in the time of those kings, those are the four kings we talked, four kingdoms, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will it be left to another people. It will be a kingdom that never ends. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it himself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not with human hands. A rock that broke the iron, now moving from the statue from the from the, from the the bottom up, that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. And of course, what God was showing the king was a succession of four kingdoms. But in the time of the fourth kingdom, the kingdom of Rome, a new kingdom was going to begin. It was gonna start small like a stone, but it was going to grow until it filled the whole earth. And of course, this is the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus meant when he showed up on the scene in Mark chapter one and said, ah, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the, the good news. Of course, this is the kingdom that we become a part of when we become a follower of Jesus. This is the kingdom that will rise again until it will, and will never come to an end. Now, this is incredibly important that as we, as we move into this week, that we remember this, that God is a God who raises up and tears down. In fact, when, when Daniel first has his interpretation, this is what he said afterwards. You see it there in the page. He says, praise be to the, the name of God forever and ever, wisdom and power are his, he's in control, and he changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. And so, for us as followers of Jesus, we need to embrace this reality we've been learning for the last six months that when Jesus died, rose from the dead, ascended into the heavens, that he sat down at the right hand of the Father, that he is King Jesus, he's Lord over creation, and he's working out his plan in history. And whatever happens this week, As followers of Jesus, we can trust that he will be with us as he is with Daniel, and he will empower us and lead us to advance his kingdom, whatever the future brings. So that's where we need to start, that Jesus is king. The second principle that's so important for us to get clear on, we've talked about this some this year, but we need to come back to it because it goes to the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, especially in a season like this. And it goes like this, that unity is a priority. That for us as followers of Jesus in the body of Christ, that as we move forward, that unity in the body of Christ is a top priority. I don't know about you, but this has been an incredibly difficult year. We've had issues that have torn our nation apart. The issue of covid Mask, no mask, how dangerous is it? What's an appropriate response? Shut down the economy, let it it go. Uh, How do we respond? It's been a a year we've been torn apart with racial issues and uh, different solutions and issues about law enforcement that have kind of torn our nation apart. It's been an issue where the economy is on the front burner and different groups are pushing for new things and more of a a socialistic uh, approach to our government. It's been a year we have a presidential election where politics and uh, Senate races and Supreme Court justices are all on the front burner, not the back burner. And it's led to an incredible season of divisiveness in our nation. But the sad thing is, is that often this division has crept into the church. One of the things that Jesus said to us right before he left, the very last night he was with his disciples, is he wanted them to understand that moving forward, that unity in the body of Christ is his top priority. And that it's by this unity that the kingdom of God will advance and the whole world will know that Jesus is who he claimed to be. I didn't print out these verses, but the references are there on your note sheet. In John 13, the last night Jesus was with them, he said, a new command I give to you. And this is it, as you lead this movement, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And then he said this, he says, by this love, will be the badge, the sign that you're truly a follower of mine. I'd say that's a top priority, wouldn't you? A couple chapters later in chapter 17, he's praying to the Father, and he says, Father, I, I want my, those who, who follow me, not just my disciples here and now, but all who come to follow me in the future, I want, them to, uh, I want them to be one as you and I are one. He said, because if they are one, if they're united, the whole world will know that you have sent me, that I'm who it claims to be. And so for Jesus, this is a top priority. Later on in the New Testament, the early church struggled with living out this priority. It's not easy to make unity a priority. And in the early church, one of the things that they struggled with was they they were not struggling with issues like COVID or the economy or uh, racial injustice or politics that what they were struggling with in the early church were, were religious issues. And if you look back, it's fairly easy to understand. Many uh, Christ followers had come to Jesus uh, as Jewish people. The, the early Christians were all Jewish. And for these Jewish Christ followers, they had grown up uh, going, uh, honoring the Sabbath. Every, their whole week revolved around the Sabbath. They went to all the festivals, New Moon festivals, Passover, Unleavened Bread, uh, uh, Feast of Tabernacles. These were huge events in their, their culture and in their cultural life, right? They, they practiced circumcision. They only ate certain kinds of foods. It was a, a core part of what it meant to be a Jewish person. It, uh, it kind of defined who they were in many ways. And so when they came to Jesus, they... They thought that everyone should follow these laws. I mean, after all, they're in the word of God, right? And the Gentiles who had come to Christ, they had done none of these things. And it was much easier for them to understand that for these, these laws, many of these religious laws that God had given Israel, that they came with a built-in expiration date, that they were temporary until the coming of the Messiah. And that made perfect sense to them, but it was harder for these Jewish Christians to wrap their their minds around So there was a lot of conflict over what does it mean to be a Christian, how we're to live as a Christian. On top of that, another issue that was really big was, is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols? We know that idols are nothing, but behind the idols are are demonic powers. And so should we eat meat that's been sacrificed ultimately to a demonic power? Has the meat been contaminated? These were big issues in the early church. Everyone have their opinion. And in Romans 14 and 15, and in 1 Corinthians 8, the Apostle Paul says that in these secondary issues, so not primary issues, not issues that determine our salvation, who God is, who we are, a path to salvation, the core moral code of the New Testament, and those you never compromise, those define the body of Christ. But in these secondary issues that are important issues, but they're not, they're not life and death issues. Paul says there often is a right and wrong. Like he weighed in and said, as followers of Jesus, we have freedom. We can worship on whatever days we want. We can eat whatever we want. You're free to eat idle meat. He said, but on these secondary issues, it's more important to love and accept one another, even if you think they're dead wrong, than it is to be right on every issue. And this is such a critical principle for us to understand in the body of Christ. In fact, Paul put it like this there in your note sheet as he wraps up his teaching in this in chapter 15. He says, we who are strong, and in context, he's talking about those of us who realize the freedom we have in Christ. See, the irony is, of course, the Jewish Christians, they saw themselves as a spiritually mature. We take the word of God seriously. The Gentile Christians saw them as immature, not realizing the freedom they have in Christ. But Paul says, hey, there is a mature position. And he says, it's that we have freedom in Christ. He says, but we who are strong, we who are right, we who know the right answer, we ought to bear with the what? The failings of the weak. Yes, they're wrong. Yes, they're being legalistic. Yes, they don't, have the, they don't understand the freedom they have in Christ. It's a failing. He said, but we who are strong, we ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not just to please ourselves. And then he said, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Let me ask you something, men and women. When you came to Jesus, did you have everything right? None of us did, right? Did you have every theological issue solved, every lifestyle issue? Did you understand what was sin and what wasn't? Did you have everything figured out in terms of of politics or philosophy? Well, of course not. Like Jesus takes us as we are and then he begins to shepherd us so we begin to grow. And so Paul says, if Jesus accepted you when you were wrong on so many issues, that this is what you need to do. You need to love and accept one another in these secondary areas even if one another is wrong. The unity is a top priority. So let's get really practical. How does this work out here like at a church at Rocky Peak? How does it work out in our friendships? How does it work out in our life groups? Well, let me give you an illustration just from my my own life. Let me use myself as an example uh, here. Not so much a model, just like an example. Um, You know, when it comes to politics, I'm I'm not really fond of many of the, the descriptive terms we use today to describe people. I believe as followers of Jesus that we need to stand with with whatever is right and true and good, as Paul says in Ephesians five, we need to stand for whatever is right and true and good wherever we find it. Uh, And so in our culture today, for example, that we use the term to describe political leanings as conservatives and progressives. So conservatives by definition often want to conserve what is. They tend to be slower to change or anti-change. Progressives, by definition, want to embrace change. They think change means progress. But the reality is, as followers of Jesus, there's at times when we should conserve what is because it's in line with God's word. There's times when we should change what is and move into a better future according to God's word. And so I'm not really super fond of these labels. But having said that and the shortcomings, the limitations of these labels, I I would say that those who know me best would label me as a conservative. They would label me as a conservative politically, uh, socially, um, theologically, uh, economically a conservative, right? And so for example, Let's take one of the issues that's really polarized our culture uh, this last year, the the, uh, issue of racial justice. Like I believe as followers of Jesus that we should always be for justice wherever it is in whatever area, certainly for racial justice as well. But as a follower of Jesus, um, I cannot support the organization that's called Black Lives Matter. And the reason is, is because if you study that organization, that organization stands for almost everything that as followers of Jesus, we stand against, except racial justice. So for example, that organization will stand, is is, wants to undercut the nuclear family. That organization wants to redefine human sexuality. Uh, what's normative, what's good, what's healthy, right, all the way down to gender. That organization supports things like uh, critical race theory. It supports things like defunding the police. And we, we know from Scripture that God has ordained the authorities. Uh, the police are such an, they play such an important role. It's a high and noble calling. And like any calling... We need to hold everyone accountable. We need to hold them accountable. But, but, but serving in law enforcement is such a high and holy calling. And so getting rid of the police um, is, is contrary to what God would teach in his word in Romans chapter 13, that the government does not bear the sword in vain, that without a safe culture, just basic safety, everything else in a culture falls apart. So so that's where I would, I'm a follower of Jesus for racial justice, uh, of course, but uh, not for, say, Black Lives Matter. But let's say that I'm in a life group. And in that life group, I have someone in my group who doesn't really, maybe they're a newer believer or they're an older believer who's never really done the research. And so they, they just think that, the organization Black Lives Matter is making a statement that Black Lives Matter, right? Which is completely two different uh, statements, two different issues. And so they're supportive of that. And we're in the same life group. The question is, how should we relate to one another? What does it look like to make unity our top priority? What it means is that what we have in common is more important than what we don't share, even though significant and serious issues are at stake, then what it means is that that person is probably going to look at me as maybe uninformed, maybe even racist. I'm gonna look at them as not understanding what Black Lives Matter organization stands for. But the thing is, as followers of Jesus, we have to be committed to love and accept one another. And in that environment, of love and acceptance, we can have honest dialogue, share our experience and together pursue God's vision for our nation and what is right and just and true. And so as followers of Jesus, as we move into this week, it is so important that we are a force for peace, not division, then these secondary issues that we love and accept one another. We make unity our top priority and realize that when we don't, when we fight and divide and we begin to attack one another because we don't see everything the same way, we are falling into the devil's trap, that we are losing the battle of spiritual warfare, that the enemy is losing and catches, we are in direct defiance of our King who said, this is the new command that I give you, that you would love one another even as I have loved you. And number three, the third principle that we need to keep in mind as we move into the future, regardless of what happens this week, is that this world is not our home. And what I mean by this is that... uh, as you can probably tell, I, I love our country, and I'm so thankful Been born here, brought here, the freedoms that we have, the Judeo-Christian ethic that we're built on. I'm so thankful for our Declaration of Independence, our Constitution. I'm so thankful for those who want to stick with that, not change our, uh, kind of the, the basis of our culture. I'm a huge fan of our nation. But it's important for us to remember as followers of Jesus, our first loyalty, our first allegiance is not to this country, it's to God's kingdom. And it's only when we remember this that we can truly be salt and light in this culture and help advance the future of our nation. Whenever we lose sight of it, it's gonna lead to problems. This, of course, is what God was showing Daniel in this dream with King Nebuchadnezzar, that yes, life is chaotic, yes, your nation's falling apart back in Jerusalem, yes, you're in this crazy pagan world now, but trust me that I am working in history to carry out my plan and there's a kingdom coming and your first responsibility is to help advance that kingdom. In fact, later on in his life, when Daniel was much older, he had a powerful vision in his own life that was very similar in meaning to this dream the king had in chapter 2. When we get to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision, and in his vision, much like in the dream, he sees a vision of four successive kingdoms, the same kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. But in his vision, he sees them as four like uh, kind of beasts or monsters coming up from the ocean, each one attacking and destroying the one before it. But at the very end, instead of a stone coming that turns into a mountain representing the kingdom of God, he sees instead of beasts coming up out of the ocean, he sees uh, like a man coming on the clouds of heaven. And this is what, we're told in Daniel 7. Daniel says, in my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, like a human being. And he was coming with the clouds of heaven, and he approached the Ancient of Days, another name for God the Father, and he was led into his presence, and he was given, catch this, he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. Notice he was was crowned king. And all nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And it's interesting because this is the passage that Jesus quoted at his trial. They were trying to get him to say something that would incriminate himself when he's on trial. And finally, they asked him straight out, Are you the Messiah? And this is what he said. Again, the high priest said to him, Mark 14, Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And he said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus reaches back to this this, uh, vision of Daniel and says, I am the one. Who will come on the sun, on the, on the clouds of heaven. I am the son of man who will come and introduce my kingdom that will never end. And brothers and sisters, this is the kingdom that we become a part of, that we're transferred into. As we learned in the last series, we we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. This is the kingdom that you and I become a part of. And we're transferred in, our primary loyalty from that point on is not to our country of birth, our country where we live, whether it's Germany, whether it's England, whether it's Brazil, whether it's Jamaica, or whether it's the United States. Our primary loyalty is to not to our country, it's to our king. But catch this, it's as we live out that loyalty, the king, we become salt and light in the country that he's called us to live and help advance his cause there and the future of that nation. And Paul talks about this, the Apostle Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter three. He actually uses the term citizenship. You know, the Apostle Paul was a citizen of Rome and he was very thankful for that. He used all the rights and privileges in his legal maneuverings, just like we should today. But I want you to catch this he was clear that his true identity was not as a Roman citizen, but as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Look what he says there. He says, our citizenship as followers of Jesus. And it's interesting because in the Greek, the word for citizenship is polituma. It's related to our word politics. It has to do with your true homeland, where your true citizenship is. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Catch that, Lord, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, to bring all creation, healed and restored under his control, he will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. And so this week, as we head into this election, uh, I hope like me, you are praying that we are seeking God, we're fasting, we're praying for this nation we love. We're praying that he would raise up leaders who will choose wise paths that would lead us into a stronger future. We're praying for God to pour out a spirit of repentance on our nation so that we can truly come under the blessing of God. But the reality is that whatever happens this week, we need to remember our first loyalty is to our king. And to seeking first his kingdom in kingdom ways. That we don't fight this battle with the weapons of the world, but with spiritual weapons, powerful. And that as we pray and as we fast and as we seek him, we seek his vision for our nation. We we seek his vision for his kingdom to come, his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we need to remember that no matter what happens, this is our confidence, that this this country is not our kingdom and our future is not here. It's in another place. And the more we live, grasp that, the more we can be salt and light in a gift to our nation in the here and now. So three basic truths. Jesus is king. Let's not forget that. No matter what happens this week, good, bad, or in between, he is Lord. Secondly, unity is our top priority. Let's love one another. Let's seek the best for one another. Let's be patient. Let's seek first to understand and then to be understood. In our life group, let's take care of each other this week. And finally, let us set our hope on the future that we're gonna live this life for the next life, that it'll make us most effective here, but it also gives us great confidence. Whatever happens here, this is not our home, that we are citizens. Of another kingdom let's pray together oh father we're so thankful for this country all that you've done in and through we're thank you for the freedoms that we have we thank you for the judeo-christian roots god and our heart goes out we want to stand in the gap for our nation we pray that this week god that you would raise up those leaders that would lead us into a better future. We pray for peace in our streets. We pray for an orderly election and an orderly transfer of power. We pray as followers of Jesus, we would be salt and light. We pray that we would love one another and we would be influenced for good. And Father, we pray that most of all, you'd keep our eyes on you. And no matter what happens, you are in control. And that even in tough times throughout history, that it's when your church has grown and thrived the most. And so we pray that you'd give us your perspective, your vision, and that we would stand uh, strong and courageous this week. We would have your peace and we would be an instrument of your peace in a society with so much chaos. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.